Hi there. Thank you very much for the invitation uh, to give this talk on COVID-19 and rheumatology. Uh, my name is Philip Robinson. I'm from the University of Queensland, uh, and I'm also involved with the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. Uh, these are my disclosures. Um, the uh, COVID-19 Alliance uh, receives funding through pharmaceutical companies, but it comes uh, all from the ACR. So essentially the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, as you may be aware, collects data from all around the world. We now have over 10,000 cases uh, and it's a really global collaborative effort that everyone deserves credit for uh, being a part of. Uh, we simply could not uh, talk about this data uh, and understand the meaning of the data without the contributions that everyone has made. So I'm going to quickly go through our um, very early work. So this was the first 600 patients uh, that we collected and we looked at hospitalization. We had a pretty standard cohort uh, and we had 46% hospitalized and a 9% death rate. And essentially this slide characterizes what we found. We found that the uh, age was an important factor. Uh, rheumatic diagnosis was uh, not differentiated between the diseases, but as we saw in general cohorts, comorbidities were important. And we saw when we used no DMAT as a reference that there were no increased risks uh, from our rheumatic disease medications and if anything, some of them are reduced risk of hospitalization. And importantly, prednisone increased uh, risk of hospitalization. Uh, this data set, uh, this, uh, with a total of almost 4,000 patients, has been uh, recently released around a month ago. We, uh, again, it was a pretty typical cohort of rheumatic disease patients with around 70% female. Again, we had uh, high rates of hospitalization uh, and death compared to uh, what we would understand to be the background rates. And I think it's important to uh, note that uh, this is highly likely to be an artifact of the registry in the way that it collects its data. Uh, patients have to come to the attention of rheumatologists and then be put in. So naturally, we're going to collect a severer um, cohort. Uh, but we saw a pretty typical um, uh, set of um, uh, rheumatic disease diagnoses. And in this set, uh, we actually started to collect um, pretty substantial numbers of the rarer problems like things like vasculitis. And these were separated out into three main analyses. Uh, and that was what would be presented on the following slides. So rheumatoid arthritis only, all inflammatory arthritis uh, and vasculitis and connective tissue disease were the sub-analyses uh, on which we also present um, alongside the main analyses. So this is how we're going to present, this is what I'm, the, the way we're going to present the data in the next few slides. So if you want to look at the overall group, it's the black inflammatory joint diseases, uh, red rheumatoid arthritis alone is in the orangey yellow color and connective tissue diseases is in the blue. So uh, as we would expect, and we've seen both in other um, data sets, um, our previous work and in wider sets, age yeah, is an important factor. Um, 
Male uh, gender was an important factor in the overall group, uh, but uh, not in any of the smaller groups. Um, smoking uh, was not a uh, uh, significant factor, but we did see a significant factor of moderate to high disease activity. And I'll come back to this point because it's a very interesting point. Um, we did see uh, increases in uh, COVID-19 deaths related to comorbidities. They varied between the subgroups and that likely relates to power issues uh, and also the uh, potential comorbidities that go along with uh, different groups. Uh, for example, if you'll see in chronic, uh, in chronic kidney disease, we saw connective tissue diseases um, being an issue, uh, being an increased risk for death in this group. And that likely relates to uh, potentially the severity of these diseases um, because this captures our vasculitis patients. And then as we saw in our first uh, set of 600 patients, um, there wasn't really a difference between the uh, groups here. Um, we did see reductions in the risk of death based on other rheumatic diseases, which really was a catch-all for uh, the ones that you don't see listed above. So I don't really know what um, value uh, that catch-all group uh, has as far as uh, helping us make decisions. But importantly, and this is the one, this is the slide that lots of people will be interested in, and this is the uh, slide that, uh, that, you know, really pinged people's interest because on some level you feel like medications are adjustable. So when we used um, methotrexate as the referent, um, and uh, it, there's a long and complicated discussion as to why we may or may not do that because patients on no DMARDs may be on no DMARDs for pretty special, interesting reasons, including comorbidities. So we chose to use methotrexate as the referent. Uh, and and, and in, when we did that, we, we saw that the no DMARD group had a higher risk of death across all the uh, factors. Now, this may relate to special factors as to why these patients are on no DMARDs, or it may in fact relate to uh, disease activity, which I'll come back to. Importantly here, though, there's a lot of data, but the things to pull out are that it seems like that there are a few medications which really stand out, and one of them is sulfasalazine for increasing uh, risk of COVID-19 death, and the other is rituximab. We saw these both in the larger group and in, in the sub-cohorts. Rituximab has got biological plausibility, uh, and so that this seems to make sense. Um, we're not really sure about sulfasalazine because sulfasalazine is often seen as a, as a pretty safe drug, um, but there is also evidence from computational studies that there's potentially interaction between sulfasalazine uh, and COVID-19. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, this, this may be something uh, real that we're seeing, uh, but we see this uh, in our data set and it's also seen in the gastroenterology data set. Other things, including IL-6 inhibitors, weren't protective. Um, 
TNF inhibitors uh, in this data set were not protective. Avatar set, there was um, no difference. Uh, glucocorticoids, again, in higher dose, were an increased risk for COVID-19 death. But here, herein lies the difficulty, uh, and this is one thing that certainly uh, we had uh, back and forth with our reviewers about these issues, is that is this channeling bias with glucocorticoids and risk of death in relation to disease activity? Uh, are people with high disease activity put on glucocorticoids uh, and therefore, in fact, high glucocorticoid uh, use is actually just high disease activity. And so uh, one follow-up analysis, which Martin Schaefer and uh, Pedro uh, Mercado organised, which uh, really they've put out beautifully in this figure, is to try and tease out this relationship. So if you look at the top here, remission, low disease activity and no glucocorticoids is here. It's used as a reference. And then if we look at the next three bars, these are progressively increasing doses of glucocorticoids. And although the absolute risk increases, the significance, the findings do not become significant. When we use to the, move to the moderate or high or severe disease activity group, those with uh, no glucocorticoids have an increased risk. And that risk increases as you go up with glucocorticoid dose. Now, there are many limitations to this data. I'm not going to say that this is definitive, but certainly it's a different way of thinking about this. And this would suggest that, in fact, it is about disease activity and not about glucocorticoid dose. And, you know, this is, in, this is inherently a... Um, not something that should come as a surprise because we know that, for example, if we're thinking about other states like pregnancy, we know about all our outcome data just in patients, that patients do better when their disease is better controlled. Uh, pregnancies do better. Uh, so this, this is not a surprise. Now I'm going to look at some comparative studies, and this is not work run by the um, COVID Alliance, but this is very this is this is a very important question because this is a question that a lot of people have. Does rheumatic disease, in fact, present a separate or or uh, additive risk on top of the other things that we know about? I think the answer um, is going to be that it's complicated. But one of the answers is is that context is crucial. I'm not going to go through all of this graph, but essentially this is 11,000 English patients and, uh, sorry, this is 17 million uh, English patients and with 11,000 deaths presented in nature. And I'll draw your attention right to the bottom second line uh, where rheumatoid arthritis, lupus or psoriasis was lumped together and we saw increased hazard ratio for COVID-19 death in England but I think importantly, if you look up at the top at things like age, uh, um, deprivation, diabetes, uh, malignancy, all of these things have a much greater impact 
Uh, and that has certainly been what we've uh, teased out in our data is that comorbidities are critically important in age. But thinking about uh, more than just, you know, lumping in diseases as part of a much larger study, let's specifically think about uh, rheumatic disease patients. And this is a set of three really nice studies that I'd really commend to you. Um, there's certainly not enough time to look at them all today, but they are um, a lovely set of studies run out of Boston and, and partners in Harvard. Very early on, they collected uh, 50 patients compared them to 100 controls. Uh, and after adjusting for age, gender, smoking and comorbidity, they found no high risk of hospitalisation or death, but they did find a high risk of mechanical ventilation. Then uh, they expanded that analysis down the line and included 688 patients. Sorry, that should be 143 patients and 688 controls. And when they looked at this with a larger data set, they found no higher risk of hospitalisation, ICU admission or death. So uh, this is potentially uh, the effect we saw initially may essentially be a power effect. When, we, um, when they then looked at a US uh, uh, TriNetX data set with uh, almost 2,500 rheumatic disease patients and 142,000 controls, when they adjusted for comorbidity, there was no increased risk of hospitalisation, ICU admission or death, uh, except in one outcome, which is VTE. Uh, and the conclusion from this final paper, and certainly what you might uh, think from this set of papers, is this is all about comorbidities uh, that are driving the... Uh, the increased risk that we see in our rheumatic disease patients. And here is some Swedish data uh, that's been recently published, e-published from the uh, Annals of Rheumatic Diseases. And they looked at um, their, you know, the, the Swedes are fantastic for collecting disease activity, uh, sorry, for um, medical record data. Um, and they found they did find increased absolute risks of hospitalisation, uh, ICU and death. Um, but they did not find uh, that anti-rheumatic drugs were associated with increased risk of serious COVID-19 outcomes. But they noted that precision was low for some of these drugs. Um, and you can see on the right, the graphs for the general population and then the excess or deficit in all-cause mortality uh, for Swedish residents with these rheumatic diseases. Uh, and certainly, I think that this goes to support the further data that's come out that says that there does not seem to be a significant excess risk for our patients simply for having their rheumatic disease. And this is their data about um, uh, medication use. And they did certainly find the rituximab effect that's been found by us and others. And they also found a risk for JAK inhibitors um, now, you may be aware that baricidinib in, com in combination with remdesivir has been found to be effective for some outcomes, uh, but certainly that doesn't capture all of the JAK inhibitors. Um, this is, I think, very preliminary data, and we haven't seen this uh, in uh, our data set, uh, in our data sets that were published today. 
and I wanted to touch on this data as well because I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's really nice to maybe give us some hope. And essentially, the, using the TriNetX system, the uh, Harvard investigators looked at what was what has been the change in outcomes over time, and they looked at an early cohort and a late cohort. And you can see by the uh, figures on the right that essentially the late cohort was doing better when we looked at ICU emissions, mechanical ventilation, and death. Now, there might be a number of uh, explanations for this, but I think some, one of the take-homes is that some of the studies trying to examine drug effects will use historical cohorts. And I think that this is a really salient reminder that we need to be really careful with that approach. But look, I, I'm excited, and I think that the improvements in, um, for example, ICU strategies and anticoagulation and other things, including maybe our use of um, uh, therapies, uh, over time, it has led to improvements in outcome. So this is my summary. And I think uh, there is a huge amount of data. And look, I really have not had time to go through all the things that I think are important and interesting because there is a lot out there. So if I've not talked about your data, please accept my apologies. But the upshot, I think, is that age and comorbidities have a huge impact potentially larger than the things that rheumatologists are worrying about. Now, some specific medications both have biological plausibility and also data suggesting poor outcomes, and I'll pull out rituximab. Um, but uh, the other issue, I think, is that high disease activity is more and more uh, coming to the fore as something that we really need to worry about. And we control high disease activity by managing our patients well with our medications. But I think we are making progress, and the data to date would suggest that, that we're making progress, our patients are doing better. But, of course, I think, you know, I don't tell anyone anything new when I say that vaccination is, is going to be the key to getting this thing done. And I would also flag that there's great new data from the Alliance coming out. There's a paper with over 10,000 cases. There's papers in development looking at different biologics and really trying to tease out that biologic risk. We've combined with uh, the gastros and the derms to look at TNF and COVID across different diseases. We've got some really, really lovely pa uh, patient-reported outcome data coming. And we've also got um, some really nice epidemiological models looking at how we can predict specific uh, complications. So I'd like to finish by really uh, thanking everyone again and saying that this data would, just, would not be there. We could not talk about it without everyone's contributions patients, doctors, our important partners and the people that have funded us. So thank you very much.